0: Uh, my name is Marcus de Sotoy, I'm the Charles Simoni Professor for the Public Understanding of Science. Here in Oxford, and I'd like to welcome you to the annual uh, Simone Lecture for 2012. And I'd like to thank again the Playhouse uh, for hosting this lecture every year. It's very nice to, to, to be in such an extraordinary space. We're actually part of a theatre set tonight, uh, as well as having a, a, a wonderful lecture. Uh, I'd also like to thank the uh, Amalur Foundation, who are, whose financial uh, assistance has made this uh, lecture possible tonight. Um, 2012 is actually the anniversary of um, touring as uh, a centenary for touring, so I was very keen to try and get a touring uh, sort of theme to to this year's lecture. Um, and one of the things, of course, he was uh, uh, very uh, influential in his starting the idea of artificial intelligence. Um, and I made a programme for the BBC, one of their Horizons on artificial intelligence, which is where I met um, this year's lecturer, uh, Luke Steels, uh, who's um, experiment just blew me over when I uh, visited him to, to find out what he'd been doing. So I was very keen to invite him along. and was very happy that he accepted the invitation. Uh, Luke is um, uh, a research professor at the Department um, of Evolutionary Biology in Barcelona. Um, he was complaining about the ru- rubbish weather we have here. Um, so, uh, but uh, he's also a uh, director in Paris of the Sony uh, Computer Science uh, Laboratory, um, He's also a very creative man. He's just been telling me about a wonderful opera that he's, been, uh, he's written and a play. Um, so, the, probably the best man to come and tell us about um, whether machines can be creative. So, uh, please give a big Oxford welcome to Luke Steels, please.
1: Well, good evening, everybody. I'm extremely happy to be here, despite the weather, but um, I guess it's still summer weather here. Um, So as as, uh, Marcus was saying, uh, tonight I I want to talk with you about uh, whether machines can be creative. Now, of course, machines creative, we have to be a bit more specific. So I made a more specific title um, which is whether robots, a particular kind of machine, uh, can be made creative enough to invent their own language. And uh, But before I go into that subject, you know, we could look a little bit at, uh, at creativity, at examples of creativity. And uh, I think a good way to start is with uh, drawings by children, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, of course, they start by making marks on a piece of paper, or babbling with their mouth, ba 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 ba. And this is like efforts to um, to master the medium, okay, to get a grip on the material, uh, which they then use uh, to make representations. And so this is what I'm going to talk about, because language is a kind of representation. You know, the marks get meaning. The, the sounds they make with their mouth, they get meaning. And this is actually uh, the mystery, the wonder uh, of language. And so, here, this drawing is, is about machines, you know. And, it, and it's fantastic. There are many machines. They're drawn from many different angles. Uh, you see the moving. I mean, the, I think this, this is wonderful. Uh, I find this very creative. Um, Now, of course, they do the same thing with language at that age, basically putting together bits and pieces and making sentences uh, out of it. Um, uh, But not yet with a a complex grammar, or maybe it's not the kind of concepts that we would use or the the kind of structures that we would use. But in any case, they're already in this uh, activity of creating representations and creating meaning, in fact, while making representations. This is another example that that I found. Do you have any idea what this might be? A woman on a shopping. Uh, some other ideas. Gladiator. A gladiator. Wow. Uh huh. Washing. A crocodile. Wow. Amazing. I haven't seen that one yet. I think we have a very creative audience here. Um, well, actually, it is a bus. And you see, one of the characteristics of representations is that you uh, you need inference to, to, to find out what it's about. And often you cannot know uh, because there are many possible interpretations. But why is this so uh, incredible, I think? Well, first of all, you see that this child picked out of the reality the kinds of objects that were important. In the middle, you have the conductor, you know, asking for the ticket, right? Because I'm sure for a child this is a, a frightening moment when you have to show your ticket. And the driver is in the little box to the right. Uh, is not important. <laughs> uh, and then you have all these windows at the top. You know, with the big window, I personally love actually sitting upstairs in these double-decker buses, and uh, I run always, uh, you know, because it's, it's so fun to see the street. I'm sure children do that. And look at the bottom there. What is, what is being shown is many wheels, right? So this is a kind of a very advanced concept, actually. It's a, it's a quantifier. It's a vague quantifier that logicians have been studying for centuries. Uh, many. And so it's the, it's the conception of many but then also how to represent that. Um, and also this also this, this bus takes the whole page because it's so huge. And you see the, the, the child is, is trying to capture the meanings that it has about the bus and trying to translate that into a visual representation. And I think this is, this is remarkable. Um, so this is kind of the, the processes that we, we see going here Uh, There is meaning, there's a a process of conceptualization, which is what aspects of reality are we going to select in order to translate into an expression. Um, And so there's a process of formulation, you know, to translate meanings into a a form of some sort. This could be a drawing, could be language, could be music. And then there's always the, the, the other side, which is, the taking an expression and then parsing it, which actually is very complex, you know, for for visual uh, perception, but also for language. It's hugely complex how how syntactic structures are built and how uh, lexicons and grammars and so on, and to kind of go back and try to reconstruct the meaning. I mean, it's not a, a simple copy process. It's really trying to find out how to interpret this meaning back into reality. So, um, so I, this is a, I gave examples of of, of language, of uh, visual, but it's also you know I, I will give a music example, and uh, uh, I'm usually quite busy, but when I don't know what to do, um, I like to to write operas. <laughs> and. Um, and so I'm going to show you a little clip because I, I know the music well. I, I write the music, not the, the text. And so this is a little uh, clip from an opera. This was performed at the, uh, in uh, Barcelona at the um, uh, Palau de la Musica, which is one of the theaters there. And so, the, the, of course, this opera is about a humanoid robot, right? Because you'll see later that humanoid robots play a very important role in my life. Um, and I'm not going to tell the whole story because I want to actually explain how music is also meaningful. This is sometimes a debate and I must admit that some music when you hear it is not very meaningful, you know, particularly by uh, contemporary composers I think. But, um, but music also is this idea that you capture essential meanings of, of what it is, of the situation, of what you're trying to convey, and then translate that into a particular form. Um, so uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the text of the whole thing. So it, it starts when uh, it's a comic opera, I should say. So people find it very funny, and uh, particularly uh, artificial intelligence researchers find it very funny. <laughs> And um, uh, the, the robot is uh, imprinted on the first uh, person that it sees, OK? So and of course, there's already confusion from the beginning, because the wife of the guy that bought the robot touched the robot without well, he was saying, "Don't touch it." you know So she did, and the robot is imprinted on her, and then she faints, and then we get the following scene. Um, well, and, and yes. Now let me play the music first, and then uh, we can uh, discuss it a little bit. Um, okay. This is the wife that has painted. have understood all the words because they're in Italian, um, but I just wanted to, to to show you a little bit, okay, uh, this music, uh, you see this is the beginning of it, and you, you hear these violins, warriors, you know, creating it's agitato, creating an, an atmosphere of what is going on here, um, you know, the I mean he sees his wife dead and of course he suspects the robot as being the the source of the trouble. And it says que cosa, Rosa Rosalinda. And then here you find for example this, this this rest note. Okay. Now it goes all very fast and this is not ideal a platform, but you know, que cosa, Rosa Rosalinda and then there's this rest and then again this this kind of Uh, melodic uh, line is starting and is being reused, you see so in music also there is the emotion, you also hear this rhythm that comes up when he turns away from uh, the wife that has fallen, then he looks at the the robot and starts calling him, you know, I will make a piece of metal from you you uh, uh, killer and so on and so all of this is reflected in the rhythm and in, in those lines that are coming so I think if we, if we look at, uh, at music, uh, then we have the same sort of thing. Okay, so it's, it's the meaning, it's expression, and not only for visual things, for language, and also for, for music. Now, each of these steps can be very creative and requires creativity. In fact, when you do the conceptualization, it may be possible that you have to invent new concepts in order to uh, conceptualize, in order to capture the meanings that you want. Of course, you may have to find new modes of expression in order to, to say what you want. Okay? A word may have to be stretched. Grammatical construction may have to be shifted a little bit. A new uh, drawing mode may have to be found. There's also, when you are parsing, um, you have to l- learn new expressions. I mean, there's new words pop up, new ways of using a construction pop up. And if you interpret, well, actually as a hearer or as an observer, you may have to uh, learn new concepts in order to make sense of what is being said. So this is going to be our roadmap. Okay, we want to understand not only these different processes, conceptualization, formulation, parsing and interpretation, but we also want to understand, if we're talking about creativity, how each of, for each of these processes that there can actually be invention, that there can be learning, that new, something new can happen. And here is an example uh, of, of finding a new form of expression. Again, it's a children's drawing. It's a very young child, three years, two months. And this is a drawing of a horse. Okay, fine. But now this child has a problem. A horse has four legs. So, how how is it going to draw? How is he or she going to draw the other two legs? Just adding them will not do it, right? So, what is this child doing? Turning the page and drawing the two legs on the other side. (laughs) Isn't that fantastic? Because if you hold up the, the, the page like that, you get this 3D experience before, you know, the glasses were invented and everything. So this is an example to show you how at a very young age, in this activity of representation making, I mean, it must be something that we have really in us, you know, that we are able to, to that young children are able to make this kind of move. Here's another example <laughs> of creativity. Um, is how to turn your ordinary PC into a Mac computer. (laughs) It's beautiful. And it's again by by playing with representations, right? It's the, uh, I think a lot of creativity has to do with changing representation, changing, bringing out new meanings. This is an example from language. It worked, sir. We bored them right out of the game. Now, I'm not a native speaker of English, but Native speakers tell me that this is not a normal way to use "board." It's used here in a sort of causative construction, which is to get something done. And uh, but we all, well, you all understand it immediately, right? And so it, it is a creative use of the language. It's like coercing a particular verb into a slightly different kind of meaning, but in such a way that we all understand it. Uh, here is another example. Some of you may recognize this. This is from lyrics from a song. And it says, you are going to define a school all right, Miss Lonely, but you know you only used to get juiced in it. Juiced in it. You know, what could that be, right? So this is a sort of going a little bit too far with, with, with playing with language. Uh, I don't know whether you already know what this is from, and then... And nobody has ever told you how to live on the street, and now you found out you're going to have to get used to it. So, the juice in it, and then used to it. There's clearly a rhyming has played a role in this particular, you know, search for a way. But maybe the author, who is actually well known because this is from a song like a Rolling Stone from Bob Dylan, um, you know, the author uh, kind of went went a bit too far, you could say. Um, Okay, so this is what we are talking about when we talk about uh, creativity in representation making. And language is one example of representation making. And so the question is, how can we scientifically study that? And um, of course, there are many books about all this, but I'm uh, a computer scientist, AI researcher. I'm also a a linguist. Um, And so the question was, how can we... We we study this. And then I came to this idea to use uh, an an older idea that, for example, Wittgenstein talked a lot about, which is language games, okay? And to set up an experimental framework uh, with either computer simulation, so you could say software agents, or with real robots that were playing language games. And the idea was that if we set up a situation and we have two robots interacting with each other, now they have to talk to each other. And the big idea was we are not going to give them our language. They have to come up with their own language. okay? Because that's the way that they will be forced to create the meanings, create the forms of expression that... um, you know, that we want to understand how this process works. And so I'm going to show you the example of one particular game that we have studied a lot, which is a color naming game. And I picked it because it's uh, one of the easiest ones that not, not to find out how it had to work, but, you know, to understand how it is going. So let me first show you the game, and then I'll show you some clips of robots playing the game. And then I'll explain to you briefly how it works. Um, So here is the game. It's a very, uh, you know, you would say when you go to a store and you want a t-shirt of a particular color, well, then you're playing a color naming game. Because you point and you say, the green one, please. And uh, you hopefully get this t-shirt. Okay, So that's it. That's the game. And so, uh, more stylized, I mean, anthropologists have been using Munsell chips to study the use of color language in uh, tribes all over the world. And they show these chips. And say we have uh, two uh, human players, Hector and Rafael. You know, they are Spanish. And so, Hector chooses one of the chips, for example, this one here. And he he tries to think, what, what kind of color is this? Okay, and suppose that he categorizes it as purple, right? Now, I have to use a word, otherwise I cannot talk about categories, but something is going on in his head that is purple. And then he translates that into a word, morado. Okay, fine. Now, Rafael uh, has his own lexicon, and suppose that he already knows Spanish, so he says, oh yeah, this is the category purple, and he applies this... uh, uh, category to, to reality and then points to the chip that is Morado for Raphael. And here in this case, it's okay. I mean, this is what Hector also had in mind. So I have to say, yeah, this is, this is Morado, uh, and the game is a success. Okay? Very simple game. Now, a second part of the game, well, not a second part, but another way to play the game is that maybe uh, Raphael is French. And uh, so Hector does the same thing. Oops, sorry. Hector chooses a, uh, one of the chips and again uh, thinks it's purple and says Morado. But now Hector, uh, Rafael doesn't know uh, Morado, but he makes a guess, you know? It's always better to make a guess. Well, not always better, but why not try? If you can win in this game by, by being lucky, why not? So he says, well, this is Morado. And then Hector says, no, 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 this is not Morado. And then he points to the right chip, and Rafael can learn. In other words, a failure in the game is an opportunity for learning. All right? So let's, uh, l- let me show you how we implemented this uh, on our robots. Well, of course, well, we did first some, some implementations like this with chips, but we also use colored objects in the environment to uh, to play the game. And um, let's look at the first example. So these are two robots. Usually, um, we don't have that many robot bodies, um, but we would like to do experiments with populations of agents. And so we use a technique that is now common, you know, to download the state of the robot, sorry, the state of an agent into the body of a robot. We pick one agent from population, load the state in the body. It's like you're downloading an app in your uh, iPhone or whatever, or, or iPad, I don't know. I'm, I'm not up to recent technology, but anyway. So, so you download something, so it's the same thing, okay? The brain of the robot is sort of downloaded in the body and also in the other robot, you have another agent downloaded. And then they play a game. And after the game, the state is uploaded again. It's like uploading a, a picture on uh, you know, Flickr or something like this. And this way, we can do experiments with many agents. We do them even with thousands of agents or 10,000, but only a few robots, bodies. So now, the first thing that these robots do is they look around to get an idea of what their environment looks like. Uh, and then one of them, you will see because the ears become green when they speak. So one, so he says, you see, the right one says Bolima. Now the other one looks and says Bolima and points. Okay, And he then, the speaker, checks whether this is the color that he had in mind. No, it's not Bolima. But like with Hector and Raphael, he can point to the object. And so this is an opportunity for the here to learn what Bolima meant. Of course, approximately, right? Because they look at the objects from different angles, so that the color is not going to be precisely the same due to lightning effects, etc. But you see the idea, right? Now, you may wonder where does the word Bolima come from? Well, actually, every robot has the right to invent a new word when he doesn't have a word yet. So it's very well possible that the speaker, in fact, it's the first time that he used BOLIMA. I mean, he wanted to point to the yellow object, he categorized the object, I'll explain in a minute how it works, and then invented a the new word BOLIMA, and of course, the hearer didn't know this word yet, so in this setup, in this situation, uh, the word was created and the word was learned by the other one, okay? Uh, Let me show another example of a game. And this is a successful game, otherwise you would believe that all of this doesn't work. Okay, so, and I'll show you also the internal uh, states of the robot, you know, to get an idea what's going on. Because we do on these robots, the whole thing Real-time vision, motor control, uh, behavioral control. So, well, in this case, the one of the robots, I don't see, remember which one, said Bolima. And now, of course, they know the word. So you expect that if uh, the other robot would say, yes, this is Bolima. You see there on the top how their field of vision is scanning over the uh, scene before them and how, in fact, they, they get a kind of 3D world model that they're building up in real time of the objects that are before them. OK, so this is an example of um, a language game. And uh, let's see how, uh, you know, how, the, how the different steps in this game, how they work. So this is uh, uh, a bit of an explanation. Don't worry if you don't get all the details. You know, I'll, I'll come back out of a somewhat deeper water, but we're in Oxford, so I suppose you're all professors or students and uh, we will find this very easy. Okay. So the first thing that these robots have to do is perception, right? Uh, they, they, they have to perceive the world and they have to uh, kind of get some sense of the, the color uh, reflection in the world. I mean if there would be uh, black and white cameras, well this experiment could not be done. So they, they have color cameras, but to have a, a camera is of course doesn't mean anything. You know you get dots in a picture. It is not yet going to uh, get you a clear, uh, well, allowing you already to say red and green. In fact sometimes people come to the lab, they see a robot, and they say, well this robot can see. No, it cannot see. It has you say. Well, it has a camera. Yes, but uh, a camera itself is only the beginning of this whole process of perception, right? And so, one way to think about perception is that you have sensors, um, which are sensitive to certain aspects of the world. So, in the case of color, we need sensors that are able to uh, that are sensitive to certain Uh, parts of the spectrum. And typically, you can have RGB, which is like the red zone, the green zone, the blue zone. So you have three uh, dimensions. But you can have uh, other dimensions. But in any case, you you create a kind of space, a conceptual space, which is made up of the different dimensions of your sensors. And in psychology, they have discovered that there are these opponent channels uh, so these are like yellow, blue, red, green, okay? And values fall along these different opponent channels. And you also have sensitivity to lightness or to brightness. So this is going to be our color space. And to show that, we will look through the eye of, a, uh, uh, of the robot. Okay, and this is a scene with uh, three objects. And you have to imagine that each of the pixels in this image they map onto a point in this three-dimensional space. Okay, so uh, for every kind of perception, you can create these kinds of spaces. So if you take an object away, like uh, let's say the uh, the yellow oh sorry the red one, well then all the points in in our space that are red are going to disappear. And if I put it back, they come back. And the same for the green one and for the orange one. So this gives us already a clue how we are going to do categorization. That means categorization is one of the ways in which you conceptualize what you want to say. And so the, uh, categorization is actually uh, a process where you uh, try to identify regions in this space that correspond to a certain category. For example, all the dots you've seen in the the clip, you know, the blue ones are in one region, the green ones are in another region, the yellow ones are in a particular region. So categorization is actually carving out regions in this space that in this case correspond to different kinds of color. And one way to carve out such a region is to identify a typical example called a prototype that will be uh, the best uh, example of a particular color category. And so this is what we're going to do. This is a very uh, well-known theory in in cognitive psychology uh, that categories can be defined in terms of prototypes. And so if you have a, a certain sample in your image, one way to categorize that sample is to do a nearest neighbor computation to find... The prototype that is nearest to the sample that you're trying to categorize. So, we're going to do that. I mean, our robot's going to do that, right? Um, and then, uh, this is how you do categorization. Now, what is uh, the lexicon going to look like? Well, it's going to be associations between these uh, prototypes and words. Okay, so I put there the words for uh, in French in order to make a distinction between the name of the English words which I used to talk about the colors here. And so jaune would be the connected, associated with the prototype for yellow, and vert with the prototype for green, and bleu with the prototype for blue. Right. So it's a simple associative memory between these prototypical points in this space and the words that correspond to that category. Now, when you have this this, this model, uh, okay, then then we can do already uh, we can play the game because you see the color chips, and you you try to find the uh, prototypes that are nearest to each of the chips, you know, and then you look up in your memory what the word is that corresponds to that particular prototype, and you say it. And the here, what is he doing? Well, he has his own set of associations, his own lexicon and so he looks up the word Morado, finds the prototype that is associated with that and then sees in, in the chips which uh, sample, which chip is closest to the prototype and says well this is Morado. You see? So it's not extremely uh, complicated because this is uh, there are of course many more, much more complex concepts but this will do. Now, we're going to look oops, at, at, at the creative part. Namely, where do these concepts come from? Where do the colors come from? I mean, many people think that colors are innate and that everybody sees color in the same way. Well, this is not true. I mean, there are cultures who have very different colors, who have more specific colors. Uh, they, they have other prototypes. And also, people are different. I'm sure you have had arguments with your... Uh, children, or your partner, or your best friend about the color of something. You know, that this is blue, no, it's black, this kind of thing. And so, there is a lot of variation which you can measure in color use in the population, and certainly in different cultures. So, we are not going to assume that it's innate. We have to explain somehow that these categories emerge, and they should emerge as part of the language game, right? And also, the words, well, they can be invented. But we have to explain not only how a speaker may come up with categories, but also how it's learned. So how, how is that going to work? Well, first, let's, let's think about how new color categories may arise. And now, uh, this is now a, a projection of the 3D space on a 2D uh, representation. And so suppose that there are two samples, OK? And they project like you have something which looks a bit blue, bluish-green, let's say, and this one looks more red. Um, so you get two color chips, and you don't have any category yet. Well, what you can do then is to say, okay, I don't have any categories yet, but I'm going to consider these two examples as the first seed, you could say, of the prototype. Okay, So these, these are my first two categories, if you want, and they correspond directly with the examples that I see. Um, Now, suppose that next game, okay, we have three samples, and there are two that are already close to an existing prototype, so I don't need a new prototype for them. But then I have a lone sample here, which is not yet matching with with any prototype. So, how to solve this problem? Well, just make a new one, right? And again, use use the, the the example as a seed for a new prototype. It's as simple as that. Now, then there's a, uh, still another case uh, where, actually, when, when you have been using a prototype and it has been successful, then you shift a little bit this prototype in, in this direction. So it's like I'm telling you uh, red, okay, and then, well, there's no other red object here, I see. Oh, yes, red. This set has been specifically designed for. <laughs> um, now, the red of this particular object Sorry. The, is, is different, right, from, from that red. So y- you have to shift a little bit this prototype around so that it corresponds better and better to what is red in, in the community. Okay, so you have three things. You create new ones if you don't have any. Uh, in, and... Uh, particularly if you don't have any that are distinctive, and then you shift them around. So that's how new concepts are invented. How do you acquire new words? Well, I mean, if I say red, and you have a, a, a prototype already, you can make an association between the two. So you make, uh, in your lexicon, you store a link, say, between azul and the prototype. Uh, but, of course, later on, it might be that somebody else says Azul, and actually this corresponds to a different prototype, right? And it may even be that you hear another word, uh, Morado, which was actually, for one, that another person used Azul for. So you get kind of a state of confusion. You get different uh, words corresponding to these, uh, the meanings that you have, the prototypes that you have. And there must be a process for progressively learning what is, is in fact, the real meaning of that particular word. Now, one way to do that is to associate uh, scores with the different uh, associations in the lexicon. And then to increase the score when you have a successful game and decrease the score when you have an unsuccessful game but you not only increase the score, but you also decrease the score of competitors for a word. For example, if uh, Azul could mean this color and this color, and this color was the one that was successful in the game, you're not only increasing this, but you're also decreasing the other. Uh, So this is called lateral inhibition. Um, Okay, so this is the way to uh, acquire words. And finally, how are we going to invent words? Well, It's also easy. I mean, if I have a prototype, but I don't have a word for it, and I would like to express it to you, me, I mean, robots, right? I invent a new word, like wabado, and I use it. And so the words here, I mean, the invention of a new word is just syllables being combined. You know, it's not sophisticated speech uh, system that, uh, that does whatever. This is just we want to test the the formation of a lexicon and of concepts rather than uh, the speech part. Okay, now there is a third step needed. So we've seen the formation of new concepts and the learning of new concepts. We've seen the formation of new words and the learning of new words. But the agents have to do something extra, which is they have to align... um, the the use of the words, because language is a collective thing, right? If you invent a word and the others cannot pick up your word, well, it's useless. Or if you are the only one using morado for for purple, uh, but actually everybody else uses morado for blue, well, this is also no good, right? So you have to come to an agreement. So there has to be a negotiation of what kind of meaning there might be for... Uh, the words in your lexicon, and vice versa, what words you should use to express a particular meaning. And here, a strategy to to solve that problem, we learned, is, again, this lateral inhibition dynamics. So what two agents are doing after a game, if the game is successful, they increase the word that they used, the concepts that they used, and they decrease the likelihood that they're using the other stuff. Okay, that's in competition, right? So it's a very simple mechanism, actually. You build links and you change a bit the weights of these connections, and it's, but it's a continuing uh, process, right? It's not you learn it in one go or the lexicon pops up in, in one go. It's a, a process of collective process in, in a group of agents um, that are uh, together constructing this kind of thing. And so this is uh, the only graph that I'm going to show, but I really wanted to show it to you. Uh, this is a kind of, uh, you know, I would say a miracle. Uh, this is an experiment with five agents. We can do them with 10, doesn't matter, or 100. But they start, what is plotted on this axis is the number of interactions they have, the number of games they have. So they play games in time. And at every instant, only two agents are playing, okay? Now, on this uh, axis, we represent, first of all, the success they have in communication. And you see, initially, success is zero. Why? Because we don't give them a lexicon. We do not give them any color categories. They have to come up with their own language from scratch. And so, obviously, in the beginning, zero success, right? And then you see, um, you see that the communicative success is gradually going up to more than 90%, uh, 95%. Okay? In other words, this, this group of uh, robots in a fairly short time, because this is only 1,000 games, and the, the games are played by different agents, right? In fact, they each play 200 games. And so very quickly, already after 400 games, they have, you know, more than 80% success. So this, this kind of negotiation of meaning with the processes that I'm talking about is going very fast. It's a sort of evolutionary process, but it's a cultural evolution process. It's not genetic. Because it's culture, cultural, it can go so fast. Uh, what you see also, this is uh, showing this green... Graph is showing the variation in the population, and in the beginning there's a lot of variation. Why? Because you know, suppose that we collectively create a color language. Well, there will be some people there that call, I don't know, that use the word babado for reddish colors, and there the people who have invented dobodo for reddish colors because they don't know of each other. In this world, there is no dictator. There's no Académie française that says, you should talk like this. And so, the, and also the robots have no way to inspect each other's uh, brain, right? They, there's no telepathy. It's a purely democratic process where everybody is equal to contribute to the language and to, uh, uh, to learn from the others and to negotiate, uh, you know, not by explicit negotiation, but as part of the games they play. And so here you see the, the size of the lexicon and of the number of categories, which is about 12, 13, which is not atypical for a basic color categories that we find in human languages. Now, this is maybe a, a less abstract way to see what is going on. Here you see on the left side, you see the, the prototypes of the agents after 1,000 games. And uh, this is for three words... Uh, they're a bit difficult to read, but the middle word is BAMOVA, and the, the word to the right is bamunu. Okay, They invented that word. And so what you see that the prototypes, here they sort of bluish, you know, purple, so okay, this is reasonable. But here you see that the colors are still very different between the agents. So the prototypes of the agents are certainly not the same. Uh, and it's even here also. You see that they are not the same, right? But this is after 2,500 games. We already see that these agents have more prototypes. And you also see that the prototypes are becoming more similar. Okay, so this is sort of a greenish color. Uh, this is all roughly dark, I don't know, black. or uh, You see purple here. I mean, they agree on, on this color most of the time. So you see this collective process of playing the game. Not only communicative success goes up, but progressively their their language is becoming similar. Um, Now another nice way to to see what is going on is to look at the uh, internal state of one agent. Um, And so this is the you know, you could say the memory of the agent, right? Now, I don't know whether you see the same as I see. Uh, You see nothing, right? So this is blank because they don't have any, uh, this agent is only one, right? We're gonna, it's kind of like neuroscience. Uh, We look at what's going on in the brain of one agent. And there's nothing in this particular agent yet. And so, uh, so when the, now these agents start to play games, and you see the, the blue uh, are the words, and the, the green uh, are the, the concepts, and then the, um, uh, the, these things here are the... is a representation of the prototypes, and these are samples of experiences they had. And you see that it's a very dynamical situation, right? So in the beginning, they create all these kinds of links and they start moving around. And you see that the the, the lines between, uh, let's say, between a word and a concept, uh, the thickness of the line represents the, the score that I talked about or the weight of the association between the word and the concept or between the concept and, uh, you know, the, the prototype. And so... the. What this is uh, intended to demonstrate is this dynamical nature of language because we are dealing, in fact, with a, a complex adaptive system, which is that you have a distributed behavior of all these agents. Each of them is doing their thing, uh, but you see a collective structure emerging. You know, it's like uh, ants that are creating a path from a food source to the nest. I mean, there's no... Central control. There's no ant that walks with a white flag saying all ants this way now. Um, You know the ants also have only local interactions. They put down pheromone, others get attracted. So the same thing here. There's randomness in the beginning. There are many different choices, but by the collective activities of uh, these uh, agents, they are able to create a common shared language. Of course, people who do complex system science, they get terribly excited when when they see this kind of stuff because that's what they are researching. They are asking questions like, okay, given the rules you gave to your agents, uh, can you prove that they will reach convergence? Uh, What happens when the population increases? Um, You know, how does it scale? Uh, How does it scale with the number of objects that they want to talk about? So over the past decade, starting from language uh, research, I mean, this language game research, which started like 10, 15 years ago, there's now a subfield in complex system science that is studying from a mathematical point of view and from a viewpoint of statistical physics, in fact, the behavior of these linguistic communities as they are uh, creating and forming languages. Ooh, five to six, is this local time? Okay, let let me... um, Okay, let me uh, show now another example, Um, and uh, this is an example about action language. Okay, so colors is kind of relatively passive, right? But now we're going to see how far can we go? Can they also learn about actions? And uh, the game is uh, is a sort of posture game, and let me show immediately a clip of two robots uh, playing this game. OK, so the idea is one robot, well, said something, but somehow, did you hear it? I didn't. Yeah, you heard it? OK, well, so one robot asks something, and the other robot then did an action. And if, if the action is, is not the one that the speaker asked, then he shows it to the other one. OK, so it's not like pointing. It's more like showing the action. Um, and so, if you, uh, the idea was that we would allow the robots to uh, invent words for talking about actions, uh, but also uh, how they would develop ways to categorize uh, actions, like raise left arm, uh, you know, sit down, uh, whatever, raise two arms, and so to to see the, the coevolution of the language and the categorizations for it. Um, Now, why is this uh, problem difficult? Well, um, the problem is that if uh, I can do an action, like I can raise my left arm, but if I ask you to do the action, I have to be able to see that you are doing the action that I'm asking, right? So, I have to be able to relate an action that I'm able to do myself with my own body to the visual image of that action being done by somebody else and also uh, if uh, if you're not doing the right thing I should be able to show you that action and you should be able to kind of imitate the action that I show you. Now this is stuff that in um, you know has been discussed a lot again in neuroscience under the header of mirror neurons because the idea of the mirror neuron is that it establishes that kind of connection. Now, of course, as a computer scientist, and they say, oh, good mirror neurons, nice, there are mirror neurons, Uh, but that doesn't help us much, because we want to know how does it work, what are the processes that are going on in these mirror neurons, and then can we simulate them, right? So it's another form of understanding. The neuroscientist will say, there isn't the brain, there are neurons which which fire up both when you see an action and when you do the action. So this is the bridge between the visual and the motor space. But we have to figure out how these mirror neurons come about. And, um, and of course, there's the, the this relation to language also, because I'm asking you to raise your left arm. So I'm using language, which is also in this triangle, right? So you have the visual, you have the motor, and you have the, the, the cognitive, the, Uh, the conceptualization of your body that you then use to talk about it. And so this is an incredibly difficult project and we thought a lot about how this might be possible. And the the solution came by um, letting the the robot play with itself. Now, um, what does that mean? Well, we, we put the robot before a mirror, for example, and the robot is allowed to do kind of motor babbling, you know, to move the arms and, and the body and so on. And at the same time, to look at itself in the mirror to see what it looks like so that connections can be made between the visual and the motor. And so um, let's look at this. So this is what we see when we look at the, uh, this experiment, right? But this is the... Uh, uh, on the left corner there, this is what uh, the robot sees and then here is, is part of the uh, pattern recognition and signal processing that's going on uh, when the robot is looking at itself because it has to, like in the case of color, has to create a space, it has to categorize uh, actions. Now at the bottom here you see what is called proprioception, which is In the body of the robot, there are many sensors—not as many as for humans—but in any case, there are many of them. And so, uh, all of this can also be sensed by the robot, so that the robot can make a relationship between the visual and and what it feels like in the body. And this is also very important because you get these um, phenomena like uh, phantom limbs, for example, where. You know people cannot move a hand but then have the still feel it or have pain in a particular part because they, they you know there's a clash between what they expect or, or what they see and and what it feels like okay this is uh, uh, in addition to the uh, to these views there's also the at the top left here, this, these are the commands going to the the motors. And so, uh, let me do it again. So these are the the motor commands. So you see the visual image, proprioception, the motor commands. But you also see in this corner that the robot is doing an internal simulation of itself, which is necessary to be able to, well, to think in a way about what it should move when it is seeing a particular action. And so it's relating simulation, vision, uh, motor control, and so on, uh, all trying to relate. And so we use that as a kind of background uh, for the language game. This is another experiment where the robot is, again, trying to create body images. But now, by looking at itself and by, um, again, relating it to a simulation, or relating it to, to an action that it is doing, and that way experiencing the action and seeing the effect of, of that action. So um, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the way that uh, children learn or something like that. You know, well, they certainly, but they do certainly do a lot of motor babbling uh, at a very early age. Uh, you know, trying to to I guess, to, to learn about what, what they can do uh, on a motor level, what it feels like, because they get the, the feeling. And I, I suppose after a while, they also look at themselves and what this is, uh, what this is like. Okay, so we do this, this kind of thing to learn these uh, connections. And then we can uh, play uh, language games where robots are... Uh, using this machinery, these interactions between the different images, and using that to, to play again language games of the same sort as I showed for the color uh, domain, but now they do it for this uh, um, uh, action, action domain. And these are some of the results again showing the, uh, you know, that this is communicative success, so this is again going up to 100% in this case, this is the variation in the number of words that they have. And so you see that from, from a peak where there are many different words to talk about the same actions, they end up with uh, a minimal number of words for talking about their actions. So now I, I want to show a final experiment, which is, uh, I think, one of the examples we already have of creativity beyond, going beyond what I showed you so far. So I showed you so far, you know how categories could be formed, how lexicons uh, get formed, and it's not the invention by a single person, like coming up with a new uh, word or something, like dobado, but it's also the collective, right? How we can collectively create uh, a symbolic communication system that we could all use. Um, but then now, this is an experiment in, in language. What happens a lot? is that you use uh, words which have uh, originated for one function and you start using them for another function. For example, the words for space like before, after, uh, are typically used in many languages then to talk about time. And so this is a sort of metaphorical uh, extension or you could also say if, if you're a biologist we call it acceptation, you know, something was developed for one purpose, and then it starts to be used also for, for another purpose. And this is an example of a, a sort of creative leap, particularly in the domain of language. You know, your, your words mean certain things, but then at some point you, you want to shift them over so that they're also useful for another domain, and you have to carry your listeners. You know, you cannot make a totally random leap, right? but they have to be such that they can follow this leap and then learn it. And so this is an experiment about uh, verbs that are action verbs, like stand, sit, lie, and so on, uh, that we developed in the context of these action games. And then to see how they could be reused, like it is in many languages, for talking about uh, the position of objects in space. Now, this is um, something that happens quite a bit in Germanic languages. For example, and now, as I said, I'm not a native speaker, so you have to help me. But do you say the glass sits on the table or stands on the table? Or you don't say that at all, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I can tell you that in Dutch, which is my native language, a glass stands on the table. Now, there are other uh, Germanic languages where you would say, a glass sits on the table. You know, I think in Danish, are there Danish speakers here? Okay, so I can use Danish examples. (laughs) In Danish, you could say, uh, you have to say, a painting sits on the wall. Now, in Dutch, you would say, a painting hangs on the wall. And maybe in English also? you see the idea, right? So there is a metaphorical transfer from the domain of actions, sitting, standing, hanging, lying, to the domain of, uh, of objects in the world. And it's typical for Germanic languages, but in Romance languages, you cannot do that. You know, we would say uh, clothes are, do you say that, lying on the table? Well, in Dutch, you would say that. You say clothes lie on the table. Ah, in French... You, you cannot say that at all. You know, they are on the table. Uh, and so there's the, differences between languages. Anyway, we did an experiment. Uh, this is with uh, Michael Spranger to, to kind of see how we could, whether we could bring our robots to a point where they would make this creative leap to start applying action words for, uh, posture, uh, for uh, talking about objects. And so these are situations which are given to them. And it worked because the, the meanings of the action words, which translated into sensory features that the robot recognized in the postures of people, exactly the same features could be reused for objects. And therefore, it's actually, you know, all of this thing could be easily be uh, transferred. Well, easily. I mean, it's still a creative leap, right? So in this experiment, is showing the number of games this is success in communication again. This is the variation in the population. So it's like the other experiments. But the big difference is that from here, um, they get to talk not only about actions, like standing up and so on, but also to talk about scenes that they see in the world, you know, uh, glasses on tables, etc. And you see, actually, there's no uh, drop in communicative success. I mean, they discovered the metaphor and then they use it and they have immediate success because the other agents can pick up that kind of use of those words in these situations. So, these are um, you know, uh, examples. So, if you come back to the question that, that Marcus asked in the beginning, can machines be creative? Well, the first thing I would say is it depends, of course, on what we mean by creative. Um, now, if you mean that it's coming up with unexpected novel solutions uh, to to problems, to real problems, then I would say the answer is yes. And what I studied is these communication problems. Okay, how can you communicate to another person something like draw the attention of somebody to a color uh, chip or to uh, you would like an action, and so that is an extraordinarily difficult problem. But I think these experiments are showing that machines are, in fact, capable of it. And so, how... Well, by a number of simple processes, it's not that there is some sort of, uh, you know, creativity module that needs to be added to the robot that you buy on the Internet, and and then it comes in a package, and you put it in your robot, and it's creative. It doesn't work that way. It's a sort of the whole... uh, you know, many processes that are going on in conceptualization, in parsing, etc. all of them have this edge uh, so that they can they are flexible, they can deal with unexpected situations but they can go beyond what is already there to invent a new thing, invent a new concept, you know, invent a new grammatical construction, stretch a construction like we bored them out of the game, you know, that it applies even though normally it would not, and so on. So this is uh, my conclusion. I don't think this is everything about creativity, um, but the advantage of this domain is that we can actually see whether, whether it works, right? We can see whether a solution comes up and when, whether it is adopted by population. So this is certainly not the last word on creativity, but I think it's a good way to start investigating this topic and, uh, and learn about it. I should also say that, of course, uh, you know, this, uh, this is a team effort. You see a lot of uh, smiling people, except the one in the middle who is uh, <laughs> worried about funding and about uh, administration. But uh, So it's, it's the creativity of these people which makes these uh, experiments possible. And these are some recent uh, books and things like that which you might want to consult. This is a paper that talks about these experiments in case you, uh, you want to go a little bit deeper. Okay, so time for questions.
0: Well, thank you, Luca, uh, for a fascinating insight into your research. Uh, absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, I mean, it must have been quite a surprise to actually see this kind of convergence. I mean, by the end of the week, these computers are talking a language, I guess, that you don't understand. You have to learn it yourself. Uh,
1: yeah. But, uh, maybe I'll show one more clip. <laughs> well, I would really that, have to show that, okay, like, that. It's only... But the and two, we got two. Some, uh, let me
0: uh, get some uh, hands of questions, and um, we can get microphones whilst uh, the clip is... So we'll have one... Um, a gentleman over here, and seems to be, and this lady here Great. Um But uh, this is
1: just to make to make that point even come, yeah. Home. Well, I do love your robots, so yeah, I okay. indulge you. Uh, but this is an experiment in spatial language. Now, here the robots move a little bit. Um, let, let me show you what they what they see when they move. And so the, there are different uh, objects in space. And it's a spatial language game. So, you know, they, they talk about left and right and front and back and, and this kind of stuff. And then you get this particular phase. Uh, in, in the case of Bolima, you might sort of have a good guess, right? Or this, that it is turned left. But what, do, what would this mean? Well, here they're still trying to, to understand their environment. They see the different objects, as you see there on top, left uh, and right. And if, if they're done with that kind of thing, then they're going to say uh, a sentence. <laughs> now, there is a bottle of champagne to be won for the person who has been able to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> really? So no, but that, that happens, and you're not
0: quite sure what... Um... No, well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> okay, we well, to... there you go. There's a the bottle code. of champagne for anyone <laughs> who can decode what but, uh, that uh, robot said there. <laughs> Maybe it was a question, but we'll take some questions, hopefully, that do have um, clearer... So the first question was from over here.
2: Uh, yeah, um, in your color example, you noted that the, the number of words kind of settled down to about 10 or something, and, and so it was similar to the number of basic color words people have in real languages. And I was wondering, is that sort of equilibrium state Uh, a consequence of the learning rules and the way you parameterize them, or is it sort of deeper and relating to the the variability in the environment and
1: that kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's related to the methods that is used for categorization. You know, there are distances. And so if you get more, then you start getting confused about... uh, And so um, it's not that we say in advance they have to be 12. It depends on the, uh, the environment, how close the, the samples are to each other. But there's a limit to how far you can go with basic colors, because after that you start talking about dark blue, light blue, you know, bluish green. And in fact, we use only 10% of our language our basic colors precisely because they're limited uh, that way. The question over here.
3: In The action things are fantastic, but your robots are doing the kind of things we expect robots to do they 're walking they 're lifting their hands, etc. and so are these do they have a limited range of movements that they can do? Are, is there a random generated driving these movements? I mean, it looks kind of motivational when we 're watching it. I mean, I'm sort of asking how random is it? Where do the movements come from? What are the limits of the movements?
1: Well, the movements are certainly very limited because of the nature of the robot. I mean, um, you know, the, the degrees of freedom that are possible. Plus, I mean, you don't want a robot to do this and this arm falling off on the other side. Right? So there's well, I
0: was quite impressed. They stood up. They managed to stand up. I yes.
1: Think quite a feat in itself. Yes, yes. So, so there are constraints put on the movements that it can do and there are limited degrees of freedom. And hence, it, it is a limited system. Now, this, this is a technological constraint. You can add more, uh, more motors, you know, more fingers, more this and more that. Um, I, I, I suppose my basic question is... I, is it just wait for the mic. set here? Yeah.
3: I suppose my basic question is if it's completely random, what happens? Is this when a game fails, when they turn away from each other? I mean, these robots sort of move towards what's interesting and I'm thinking, well, if it's random. You know, maybe one of them would gaze up the ceiling, drift off the other corner of the room. They seem to be...
1: No, no, but they, they would drift off to the other corner of the room. Like, if there's a strategy for paying attention to what is moving, you know, and they're, they're looking, and then there's moving something there, they would look there, and if they are oh, there, you see, unless you dampen that particular method. So, um, but I mean, please don't put more into the robots than, than there is. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot in the robots, and they do amazing things. But for example, they have no um, emotional aspects. The motivation to play the game is put in by us, uh, etc, right? So this is a scientific experiment um, that we can do systematically investigate uh, these, these issues.: But they are very cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay.
0: uh, let's uh, have uh, this uh, lady here. And then we've got uh, um, uh, the gentleman at the back uh, yeah, there.
4: Um, um, thank yes. you very much for a very interesting talk. Um, one of the things that struck me was the kind of language that you are using to talk about the robots and the way they respond. And it seems to me that your language is actually very sort of human-centred. It's a kind of anthropocentric language which is imbuing these robots, it seems, with human qualities. You're talking about them trying to do this, they're experiencing that, they're feeling that, they're seeing this. And then you raise the question whether a robot is creative. And it seems to me that this is in danger of kind of skewing the debate in a very peculiar way, such that we imbue these robots with human intentionality and, and uh, purposiveness, which is kind of the way in which you are talking about them, whereas it seems to be really what's happening from your experiments, which was fascinating to learn about, is that these outcomes uh, which you regard as problem-solving are, if you like, the products of um, sort of interactions of programmed responses, And that is entirely different from our understanding of human intentionality and purposeful behaviour. Or is it? I mean, that's my question. And I really don't know whether you want to make that kind of leap. Um, So, um, and I wonder then where that kind of filters through to the notion of creativity itself, which is kind of drenched in sort of anthropomorphic notions. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about this issue of, in then, sense, my second question is, I'm not quite sure whether what you're doing is trying to understand human responses or whether what you're trying to do is really about um, understanding the limits and pressing the limits of what we can do with robots. And that that's actually separate from understanding how we work and our brains work. But the number of moments when it kind of crossed over, and we talk about neuroscience and mirror neurons, and then we're back to talking about robots. Yeah. And I wasn't quite clear of the status of your claims.
1: Okay. No, this is a very good question. And uh, I, I'm the first one to admit that people like myself, you know, get carried away sometimes. I try not to. I didn't mention consciousness, for example.
4: LAUGHTER
1: um, But I I try not to. Uh, But it's very difficult to describe the experiment in terms, you know, instead of saying the robot tries or the the robot makes a a movement. uh, You know, if I say, well, there's a random number generator that uh, sets a a state of the motor and then it moves towards that, which is what is really happening, um, then I think uh, the room would be empty by now. So it's, it's, it's a way to, to convey that Our language is, is limited, if you want. I have to use some sort of language for you. You could say, "Is this really a language that the robots develop?" Right? Uh, I mean, I'm using all the time uh, terms from humanistic uh, discourse.
0: It does seem to be a new trend in artificial intelligence uh, to embody that intelligence, which is what you've done here. I mean, as you say, you could have had it in just machines. So, you know, what, what's, uh, the, the fact that it is actually in a body seems to be a, an important a new trend in artificial intelligence, I mean, that connection between
1: intelligence yeah. and the body. Yeah, well, th- this is already one of the ways to get away from a purely computational program, you know, without any connection to the world, uh, and any, uh, any sensory, uh, again, the word sensor, you know, is it... Uh, can we use the word sensory for this? Can we use perception? I mean, then all my words would, would be gone. I would be naked before you. Um, so but, uh, so to, to, to say what I think myself is that um, these experiments are a way to get uh, insights into these processes, I mean, the processes that might be underlying uh, language, um, concept formation, you know, everything that I talked about. Now, I was careful to say they are not models of human uh, uh, child learning or anything like that. So I, I, I would not make that claim. But it is a little bit like uh, the Wright brothers when they uh, were researching flight, you know, they wanted to build an artificial flying machine. Okay? And they succeeded. And they didn't do it by imitating birds, but by just saying, well, what, what do we need to, to get something flying? No, they didn't need feathers on the wings. Uh, but they needed wings. And they needed certain properties. And this is the same attitude. You know, we are building this kind of stuff. And then the Wright brothers developed uh, a good part of aerodynamics and methods for that later, you know, mathematically and so on, you get models, which then are very useful to look at birds and to say, oh, how would they, how are they able to fly? And I think that's what this is about, is to to open up our brain and to think about all sorts of possible ways, maybe not the way that humans do it, but, you know, what could a language be like, right? It's an artificial language. Um, Just like you can think about artificial life, which is not the life on our planet, but which is some, you know, maybe another life form that doesn't exist yet, but it has properties of living systems. So that's the kind of exercise that's going on here.
0: Uh, We've got a question over here. And then probably time for well, one more question. Yeah, after I'll that try to give shorter answers. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. In, and short questions as well, please. Yeah, in, uh, in typical bad, bad comedic timing, uh, I was going to start off by referring to the picture that was behind you, but it's disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> <But, laughs> I don't know if it's going to come back. Is this a um, picture? Y- you said there was a bottle of champagne available if you could tr- interpret what the robot was saying like uh-huh, to the robot. okay. And I worked out it was saying that bottle of champagne is fake. <laughs> um, uh, what I was going to ask you actually was, when it was pointing to the yellow box, uh, when I was, what I was going to ask you was, um, do you unleash your agents on each other in a purely virtual environment, and do they, do they communicate, do they share language and, like, the language that they've restored about certain objects, uh, you know, in, in a purely uh, abstract environment without being inside the robots? or do you only ever activate the agents when they're inside the robot?
1: Yes, they always are situated, embodied uh, interactions. So there's no change to their internal states when they're not embodied.
2: Because I was thinking that you'd have a lot higher iteration rate of finding out whether or not they were sharing sharing the same words for the same things if they were actually in a virtual environment, you yeah, know, but the one that's being modeled. You know, in, it, no. I mean, they couldn't presumably tell the difference between sure. a modeled virtual environment and, and a real environment. So why, why choose to make all the effort of you know, downloading the intelligence into each particular... Yeah,
1: robot? yeah, yeah. No, no, this is also a very good point. I mean, I insist on doing it for real, just I think like the Wright brothers wanted to build a real airplane at some point, right? Not a simulated plane. And this is to deal with all the uncertainty, the noise, the unpredictability of real environments. Because this is the, what happened in artificial intelligence is that for a long time they worked in computational virtual settings and with simulations and then found out that if they go to the real world, then those things don't work anymore for many, many reasons. So we confront ourselves with the, the real world, real sensors, objects, you know, to avoid that that kind of uh,
2: to deal with uncertainty. And that leads very much onto my, the next little point I want to ask about, which is um, yes, why. Because I I was brought up, my, my father worked on uh, artificial intelligence and uh, to some extent on expert systems um, back in the eighties, and it doesn't seem that like there's been a huge leap in terms of what AI systems are capable of in the last thirty years compared to what a motor vehicle is capable of. You know, the the, you know, the usual things of uh, you know, yeah, interesting. I mean, which, to would touring be okay. uh,
0: well? How would touring
1: think about um, the state of AI? In well, December? first of all, I, I strongly disagree with you. Uh, have you heard of a program called Google?
2: But, but well, I have, and I've wondered why it, is, it still seems to be so rubbish uh, returning good results.
1: <laughs> well, if it's uh, so rubbish, it's better, why are yeah. all these people using it? You know, <coughs> well, no, now, I, I admit that this is not, but this. Google is full of AI technology. This is an AI company. Now, they don't say it because maybe it will scare people, but um, all the language technologies that go into it, the semantic networks they're building, are the results of the kind of research that you also have been involved in. But you know,
2: Google still can't answer back.
1: No, but you see, I mean, this is the problem of AI. But you can see. I like that my audience, <laughs> <laughs> You know. <laughs> It's it's like in uh, you could say to biologists, well, you still haven't synthesized the complete forest. I mean, yes, they didn't. Um, I mean that that's not what it's about, right? It's about understanding the principle. We have to view it as a scientific enterprise, and it's not going to be the absolute uh, hum- uh, humanoid robot that walks in here and solves you know, the, the, has the creativity of Marcus in dealing with mathematics and all of that.
0: That's not... Good, I'm not out of a job yet.
1: No, not no, no, and that's not, that's not the aim, just like, uh, I don't know, uh, other fields. It, it's, a, it's a continuing uh, uh, research into the nature of intelligence and, and those kinds of things, and in 50 years we will still be doing it. So I'm going to have to draw you know, the evening because there's okay. a
0: creative uh, process going to go on very shortly, which is a play going to appear. I can already hear the actors in the wings sort of uh, uh, <laughs> uh, looking forward to coming on. So, um. <laughs> um, But uh, I'd just like to thank uh, Luke very much and the audience for a wonderful set of questions. Uh, uh, Kind of intrigued how long it will be until I'll be inviting one of those robots to give the uh, Simone lecture, but I don't think it will be next year. But uh, let's give Luca a great round of applause for one year. Thank you.